good morning and, uh, and welcome to Sojourn and happy Easter to you. It's good to gather with you this morning. Uh, my name is Justin, I'm the pastor here at Sojourn Church. And as has been said to you a couple of times this morning, if you're new here, uh, we're grateful and glad that you're here this morning, whether you came with a friend or family member uh, or you're checking out looking for a church in the area. Uh, whatever it happens to be. We are thankful that you're here this morning because this is a, a special morning. Every week we gather together as a church and every week we celebrate the reality that Christ is risen. But once a year we take a special week in celebrating Easter uh, to commemorate that, to remember that, to uh, just focus on that together as a church. You know, it's been uh, a little while, if you're a part of surgery, it's been a little while since I've uh, been up here. And... Um, I'm just grateful to be up here this morning. I'm grateful to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. And I'm thankful uh, for the men who have been in the pulpit over the last few weeks and the last couple of months. And uh, I know has been a blessing to me. I hope has been a blessing to you as well. And I am hopeful this morning. I'm hopeful for what God's going to do in our time today. And I'm hopeful for what He's going to do in and through the life of this church in the coming days and weeks ahead as we seek to walk in humility and faith together as a church. Uh, And today, what we celebrate today is the reason that we can be hopeful. Uh, It's the reason we can be hopeful because Christ is risen. And so we're going to begin our time in God's Word, but before we do that, uh, if you need a Bible this morning, would you just raise your hand? We have a few folks that are going to bring a Bible around to you. You can just keep your hand up. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us this morning as we open up God's Word. We're going to be in the book of Luke this morning. And so uh, as you get settled in this morning, let's just go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we jump into His Word. Father, we are in awe of the fact that you, the holy God of all creation, who has always existed for all eternity, who called us into existence by the word of your mouth, would allow us the opportunity to gather together under the name of Jesus, your son. And Lord, we are thankful, we're grateful, we're overwhelmed, we're in awe of the fact that you, the holy God of all creation, would want to know us and have sought us out to bring us into relationship with you through Christ, your son, who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death and then rose again from the grave. And so this morning, as we remember that, as we focus on that, I pray that it wouldn't just be a story to us, that it would impact us, that we'd recognize it is relevant and important for our life here and now, today and forever. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd work in and through this time, that what would be proclaimed this morning would be Jesus, what would be proclaimed this morning would be your name and for your glory, and that by doing that, Lord, you would do a good work in our hearts and in our lives today. And so we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. In, uh, in 2003, uh, NASA launched one of, the, one of the largest, most expensive, most uh, expansive exploration projects in modern history. It sent a rover to Mars. It sent a rover to Mars. And this has been uh, something that for a long time, as we've been curious about our neighboring red planet, they, they wanted to explore it more and figure out what really is going on on the planet of Mars. And, and even though Mars is our next planet, uh, the next planet over from the sun, from Earth, it's very different than 
earth. The average temperature on the face of the earth is 57 degrees Fahrenheit. The average temperature on Mars is negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit. Earth's atmosphere is made up mostly, mostly of nitrogen and oxygen. Mars' atmosphere is made up mostly of carbon dioxide. So Mars is not too hospitable of a place, not too hospitable of an environment to find yourself in. And since that project has begun, several rovers have been sent to Mars. The Spirit, the Opportunity, and most recently, the Curiosity. And these rovers have been tasked with something, primarily to, uh, to look at and study the geology of Mars, to understand what's Mars really made up of. But even since then, as the project has continued to develop and grow, these rovers have continued to grow in their tasks. And one of the things they've been looking for most recently is evidence of water or biology on this planet. And some interesting data has been found, but no strong evidence of the ability for organic life to exist on Mars in a natural way now. It's been roughly 13 years since this project has been in existence, and it's already exceeded a billion dollars in cost and is budgeted to continue to rack up more billions of dollars in expenses in the coming years. That's a lot of time, and that is a whole lot of money. Now, while all this information is really interesting to learn about our neighboring planet, it seems as if the search for habitability isn't promising considering just the sheer makeup of Mars. We don't have to know much, but negative 81 degrees and carbon, carbon dioxide do not make a place where we want to build our next house. It's not hard for any of us to realize, yet they've spent all this time and all this money exploring it, but it seems as if they're looking for life in all the wrong places. And as I was thinking and studying, preparing this week for Easter Sunday, a Sunday where we celebrate, where we talk about life emerging out of a place of death, the thought came to mind, how often do you and I tend to also look for life in all the wrong places? And how often do we do that by spending a whole lot of time and a whole lot of money doing so? As we jump into our text today, we're going to see why this matters not only today on Easter Sunday, but each and every day of our lives and what the reality of what we celebrate on Easter has to say about that. Let me just say this morning, if you're not a follower of Christ, you don't call yourself a Christian, you're not even really sure if God exists, but you find yourself here this morning, let me just say I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful for you here. My, and my prayer and my hope for you this morning is that God will use our time together in a significant way in your life today. And if you do call yourself a follower of Christ, if you do know Jesus and, and you do seek to follow the Lord, today's a celebration for you. My hope and my prayer is the same for you, that God would use this in your life in a significant way this morning. So let's jump in and may God bless the preaching of his word this Easter morning. If you do have your Bible, you can go ahead and flip to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Luke is the third book in the New Testament. And it is a gospel account. Luke is writing the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And so we find ourselves in this text this morning in Luke chapter 24. But before we get into this text this morning, I just want to give us a bit of context uh, for some of us, this might be new information. It's a new story. Maybe you've never heard this before. And for others of us, we've heard this maybe many times. Maybe it's very familiar, maybe even too familiar to us this morning. So whether you've heard it a hundred times or this is your first time, I want us to get into the story a little bit, kind of feel what's going on here. 
Prior to Luke chapter 24 and Luke 22 and 23, what we see is, is Jesus has been living his life. He's been doing this ministry, but as he's come into Jerusalem, there has been an effort to take him down, to take him out. Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest disciples, one of the men that walked closest with him over these first few years of his ministry, these first three years of his ministry, and he's arrested and he's arrested and he's brought on up on, on kind of trumped up charges in what can be called kind of a circus court. There, there's no real validity to what's being thrown at Jesus. He's been falsely accused. Then he's even brought before the Roman leader of the area, a man named Pilate. And Pilate even investigates Jesus and says, Jesus doesn't see, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with this. This seems to be a religious matter, not something that's a matter for me. And so he tries to let Jesus go, but the people just keep coming at him saying no. They come at him with a determination, yelling, screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate gives Jesus over to death. And he's nailed to a cross as a common criminal among common criminals. Crucifixion was a way that the Roman government sought to put criminals on display as a deterrent from others that they might rise up against Rome. And the people stood there and they mocked Jesus and they ridiculed Jesus. Saying, if you're really the king of the Jews, if you're really the son of God, then why can't you take yourself down off that cross, Jesus? Why can't you save yourself, Jesus? You said you came to save us and you can't even save yourself? What a joke. And so Jesus hangs there in agony and in pain. And the sky grows dark and Jesus gives up himself, gives his spirit over to the Father and he dies. And we learn at the end of Luke 23 that Jesus' body is taken down off the cross Someone has to actually go and ask for Jesus' body. It would be common at that time for those that were crucified for their bodies to be ripped down and thrown into an open common grave, uh, a mass grave of people. But a man, a follower of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, goes and asks for Jesus' body. Out of respect for Jesus, out of respect for his Lord, and he, and he buries him in a tomb that's been carved out of rock. We find ourselves at the end of Luke chapter 23, and it says this, verse 55 and 56, the women who had come with him, who had come with Jesus from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned to their homes, likely, and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. And then we get to Luke 24. Then we get to our text of what we're going to look at today. And this is what Luke records, Luke 24, 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, on Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose 
and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. As we look at these 12 verses, there are really kind of four movements that are going on that are happening in this story. And so I want to walk through those four movements with us this morning and then try and figure out, well, what in the world does this have to do with you and me and our life right now? The first movement happens in verses 1 through 3. At the end of Luke 23, we have to look and kind of think for ourselves. We can read this story, and especially if this is familiar to you, you might miss this. I might miss this, but really kind of asking the question, what would everyone be feeling at that moment at the end of Luke 23? They've been following Jesus for a while. They've been hoping that Jesus is the king that they've been waiting for, the Messiah they've been longing for, and all they see at the end of Luke 23 is that Jesus is dead. I mean, you can imagine there'd be defeat and confusion, despair, maybe disillusionment, darkness, just a kind of a general sense of hopelessness. Everything they'd been hoping for seems to have all gone away when Jesus died. And this group of ladies who've followed Jesus for some time now, they want to honor Jesus by giving him a proper burial. But the preparations would take some time, and the Sabbath day, which was a day of rest for the Jewish people from all, all work, was coming, and so they were going to have to wait. And so Saturday comes. It's a sorrowful Saturday. They saw Jesus crucified on Friday. Sunday hasn't come yet, and there's this sorrowful Saturday. You know those times, don't you, in your own life? When you just aren't sure God cares. You aren't sure he has a plan. You aren't sure he's in control. Maybe there's something going on in your life right now that you feel that way. I know I've had those moments even over the last two months. But what we see, what we see at the beginning of chapter 24 is a key word. It says, but. But. See, Luke's anticipating something. He's, he's drawing us in. There's a tension here. There's an expectation that something is about to surprise us. Chapter 23 ended in death and sadness, but something different is about to happen. And we see this early morning scene. It says it's, it's kind of early dawn. It's, it's what we could describe as, as pre-dawn. The sun really hasn't peaked over the horizon yet. If they had their digital clock next to their bed, it would technically be the a.m., but it's still dark outside. It's likely these women haven't really slept in a bit of time, They've been distraught. They've been minds racing, thinking. Maybe you've had those moments too. You're trying to go to sleep or you go to sleep and you wake up and you go to sleep and you wake up because your mind's just racing with different thoughts, wondering what in the world is going on. And so they're, they're, they're expecting something. They're hopeful for something, but it seems that that's all gone away. And so it's technically the morning, the Sabbath's over. And so they get up early and they go to the tomb with their spices at their first opportunity. But when they get there, when they get there, they see the tomb is open. Now we can read that again and we can think, okay, no big deal. I, I know this story. My, my wife, Amy, um, one Sunday morning recently, uh, she, on Sunday morning, she has to, to get uh, all of our kids out the door by herself. So we have three kids, uh, almost six, uh, down to seven months. And uh, I'm here 
generally early on Sunday mornings. And so um, she is trying to get these kids ready and out the door, which is a difficult and challenging task. So uh, just one particular Sunday morning, she did that. They got here, normal Sunday morning, gathering with the church, all that kind of stuff. She usually gets back home before I do because Sunday is usually a, a work day for me, meeting with people, doing different things. When she pulled back into the driveway, though, that particular Sunday morning, she realized our front door was standing wide open. And we have a screened-in door, but it's not locked. And so the front door behind that screen door is wide open. So you can imagine she's pulling into the driveway. Have you ever done that when you've come home? Maybe the garage door's open or you left a window open or a door open. And your, your first thought is like, oh man, that's no big deal. You're thinking like, oh my goodness, did I really do this? It, should I go in the house? Is there someone in my house? Did I leave the door open or did someone break into my house? I don't know. There's all kinds of thoughts that might go through your mind. See, when the women get to the tomb and they see the tomb open, they're not just like, hey, no big deal, tomb's open, cool, easy access for us to put the spices and the ointments in there. No, they're, they're, they're going, wait, 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 something's not right here. Something's not right here. This would have been a startling for them to see the tomb open. As we think about that, as we see that, we have to understand this kind of shock that these ladies would have, but at the same time, what the tomb, open tomb is doing is kind of inviting them in. There's a bit of intrigue there because notice they don't run to tell anyone. They don't go get anyone. They don't just hang out and debate what's going on here. They go in and the women find an open tomb, but they do not find a dead Jesus. But notice something here. They see the empty tomb. They go in and they realize that Jesus isn't there, but they don't assume resurrection. You don't see the ladies running out going, he's risen. No, they don't do that at all. It says they're perplexed. They're they're dumbfounded. They're confused. Maybe they're anxious and fearful, not knowing, not understanding what would be going on. And why wouldn't they be? I mean, this is crazy. They just saw Jesus' body crucified on the cross, taken down, laid in this grave on a Friday, and now it's Sunday. The tomb is open and the body is gone. And so this leads us to our next movement in the story. In verses 4 through 8, These women are standing there. Maybe there's a few of them inside and a few outside. We're not exactly sure how many women are there, though a few names are listed in the next coming verses. But they're probably standing around going and wondering what in the world is going on. And it says all of a sudden there are two men standing next to them in dazzling apparel. Now there's new emotions and new feelings. They're, They're frightened. It says they bow down their faces to the ground. It's an act of reverence because they know who these two men are. And we learn from other gospel accounts that these are angels. These aren't just some weird dudes in weird clothes, right? These are actually angels from God, messengers sent from God, and they've come with a particular message for these particular ladies and for the world. But they don't start with a proclamation and they don't start with a declaration. They start by asking a prompting and personal probing question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead. But before an answer is able to come out of the mouths of these ladies, the angels do proclaim some amazing news. He is not here, but is risen. This would have been shocking to them. Again, their emotions all over the place, their minds racing, their hearts beating fast. Could it be? Could Jesus really and truly be alive? Or maybe they were thinking, how could it be? Is it even possible? But notice what the angels don't do. They don't give evidence. They don't give explanations about how this could actually take place, how this could be possible. 
They simply point back to the very words of Jesus himself and say, remember. Remember. Remember how he told you that this would happen. Remember how he told you he must be delivered into the hands of his enemies. Remember how he told you that he must be crucified. Remember how he told you that he must rise again the third day. Remember. And in remembering, he reminded them that this was all for a reason. There's a key word in here in what the angel says, that word must. He must do this. I mean, this is a strong word. It's a, it's a word that says this is required. It's without equivocation. This must take place. So a question we should ask this morning before moving on is why? Why must all of this happen? Because our eternal God purposed to rescue a rebellious people. See, all of us have rebelled against God, against holy God, wanting to be in control of our own lives, wanting to be self-sovereigns, little kings over our little kingdoms. We've given worship to other things. We've given praise or adoration or significance or worth to anything, everything except God. Why must all this happen? Because the only way to bring about rescue in your life and my life is for our rebellion to be paid for. See, God is holy and God is just. He can't allow our rebellion or what the Bible calls sin to be present in his presence. Why must all this happen? Because God made a way for you and me to have our rebellion eradicated and our record wiped clean. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says in you, he's talking about us He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Sin causes physical and spiritual death. But then it says this, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all of our sins, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, Sojourn, on the cross, Christ paid for the sin of his people. The people demanded crucifixion. Pilate gave Jesus over to death, but Jesus was always in control. He willingly laid down his life. He willingly laid down his life as a substitute sacrifice for sinners like you and me. Like the mob that wanted him dead, Jesus went to the cross willingly. The people mocked Jesus for not saving himself, missing the reality that he stayed on the cross to save them. And so he died. But the ultimate triumph that Paul mentions in verse 15 over sin and over darkness and over death comes in and through the resurrection of Jesus. See, without the cross, there is no resurrection. And without the resurrection, there's no triumph. There's no victory. But Christ has accomplished both of those things. And because of that, everything has changed. See, death cannot hold Jesus because he didn't do anything to deserve death. Death comes because of sin, but Jesus had no sin. And instead, he took on the punishment of sin for us and he he broke it in half over his knee. And he threw the, the shards, the scattered and shattered shards of existence of that sin and that death all over the throne room of his throne and his kingdom. 
See, what the angels are proclaiming is not simply that Jesus is not here, not even that Jesus is alive. They are preaching a sermon that says that everything Jesus said he came to do and everything that Jesus did is true. That the kingdom of God is at hand, that the good news is preached to all people, and that real and true life and freedom are found in him because Jesus has defeated sin and death, because he's risen See, this open tomb, this empty tomb is an invitation for you and for me to place our faith in the risen Jesus for life. See, Sojourn, we have to see the resurrection of Jesus is not a footnote on a nice story. It's the underlining and exclamation point on the most important story in all of history. Remember, the angels declared, remember, Jesus is alive. Just as he said he would be, why would you look for the living among the dead then? This leads into our third movement in this story, verses 9 through 11. A light bulb has kind of gone off for these ladies. They they do remember Jesus' words. It's like in a movie. You ever see a movie, right, where where all of a sudden there's kind of that person, like everything just clicks. And a montage of scenes kind of flashes across the screen to see them kind of putting all the pieces together to getting it. That's what's happening with these ladies. All of a sudden they're replaying in their mind everything that Jesus had told them. And when the angel said, remember Jesus' words, they do remember him saying this. And so they don't stick around anymore in a place of death. They go out. They they go to tell all the other disciples, particularly the 11 disciples that are gathered together in Jerusalem. And Luke tells us they go and they tell them all these things. But you can imagine going back and probably speaking over one another, trying to explain everything that has just happened and how they got there and the tomb was open. They went inside and there was these two guys in these crazy clothes and they they told us Jesus is risen. Remember, Jesus told us that he was going to do this. But what do these guys do? How do they respond? They don't believe them. They think they're crazy. Making up some wild tale to cope with their distraught reality. You can almost sense from them, they're kind of saying, ladies, Jesus is dead. He's dead. So we have to try to understand this a little bit. See, the apostles' dreams, they think, have kind of been shattered. They expected Jesus to rule and reign. They expected for Jesus to bring his kingdom here and now. And the same words spoken to the women were spoken to these men, but they too don't remember. In fact, in one of the accounts where Jesus is telling them this this is Luke chapter 18. And right after Jesus tells them all these things that are going to happen, it says they don't understand what he's saying. They don't understand. So if you're skeptical or a doubter, Listen, you're in good company this morning. The very disciples, the men who walked closest with Jesus were skeptical and doubted. So now in the midst of the haze of their grief and the settling fog of a a disillusionment over their life, even an eyewitness word of resurrection does not bring immediate relief or hope because they simply don't believe it could be true. Well, at at least not most of them. This gets to our fourth movement, the last verse, verse 12. In this fourth movement of the story, we see one of the disciples take at least a notional step of faith. Peter decides to go and check things out for himself. It says he runs to the tomb. But as Peter runs to the tomb, he's not running full of faith. He's unsure. But perhaps there's there's an, an inkling of faith, an inkling of hope. Could it be true? Maybe some of you find yourself there this morning. You're unsure. You aren't full of faith. 
But perhaps maybe somewhere deep inside of you right now, there's an inkling of faith, a small bit of hope. Could it be true? What if Jesus really is who he says that he is? And so Peter runs to the tomb and he stoops and he looks in and what he sees is astonishing. He sees nothing. Well, he sees Jesus' grave clothes lying there, but no Jesus. And Luke says that Peter went home marveling at what had happened. But the word marveled here doesn't mean all of a sudden that Peter, Peter's a believer, that he's got it all together, that all the pieces have made sense to him. Marvel just kind of means that Peter's going, wow, what in the world is going on? What has happened? This is amazing. So let me ask you a question this morning. When you hear this story, again, maybe this is the first time you've heard it. Maybe you've heard it hundreds of times. What are you thinking and feeling? What are you thinking and feeling? Maybe you're thinking, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before. It's Easter. Of course, this is what we're talking about. Maybe you're feeling thankful because as you hear this story once again, this is good news to you. Maybe you're feeling despondent this morning in hearing this because you have real challenges in your life right now, real difficulty in your life right now, and you aren't sure how this helps you. Maybe you feel disconnected. What in the world does this have to do with my life? See, I think all those things are normal to feel, and here's why. Because I think all of us, whether we know and follow Christ or we don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we too tend to look for life in all the wrong places. See, the women didn't expect Jesus to rise even after they arrived and saw the empty tomb. The disciples didn't expect Jesus to rise even when they were told they still didn't believe. And you and I can hear the same news, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, and still not truly believe, or, or we don't believe it in a way that it actually impacts our life. We all look for life in all the wrong places. We look for the living among the dead. And I can say that this morning. I, I can say that as a true statement because I know, and I know that that's true because I do it. I'm not just saying that about you. I'm saying that about myself as well. See, the question is not, do we do this? But where do we do it and how do we do it? As one pastor said, the world we live in is filled with illusions and pretense. It's filled with illusions and pretense. Something trying to appear to be true that isn't actually true. What that means is that we live in a culture of death. We look for life in places of death all the time. It's all around us. We sacrifice true life for the pursuit of what we think will bring us life and happiness. Promises or hopes and things that will never deliver. Facades and fakery. And then in our pursuits, what we're doing is we're setting aside God, we're setting aside His kingdom for the preservation of self and our own kingdoms. So we use, abuse, and exploit people and things constantly as we look for life in all the wrong places. Sometimes it's overt, but most of the time, for most of, us, it's, most of us, it's subtle. It might be with your friends or your family or your coworkers, your neighbors, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your spouse, your kids, total strangers. It could be through sex or food or drink or money. You can add anything to that list where we use and abuse and exploit things, looking for life in them when they cannot deliver. And all the while, we quietly and subtly think, how can this person, how can this thing bring me life or happiness today? 
How can this person, how can this thing make me whole? And as we pursue those things, we become attached to them, even addicted to things that aren't God or less than God. Now, all those things I listed are not bad, but none of those things will give you the life you long for. As another pastor said, we often think all we have is the moment. All we have is the moment. And when that's the case, when we believe that all we have is the moment, that all that life is is where we are in the present, here and now, what we tend to do is we take those things and we tend to turn those moments and turn those things into a paradise here and now. We want to create the world we live in, we want to make the world we live in a paradise for us here and now, but we have to acknowledge the reality of our world that we live in. Our world is jacked up. It's stained by sin and its effects. Darkness is very clear to us. I don't have to ask you if you believe darkness exists. I think you know that darkness exists, whether it's just by turning on the news, seeing the terrorist attacks that have happened most recently. Isn't it interesting to us that we can see that and be heartbroken over that? But if we're honest too, it's not surprising to us because we expect darkness to be there. We know darkness exists because of things that we've done. We know darkness exists because of things that have been done to us. But the resurrection of Jesus speaks a word to you this morning. It tells you that this world is not all that there is, and it tells you this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. It tells you this morning that Jesus came to do what he promised. He came to crush sin, crush death, and to bring about life and light and to make all things new. See, when we look to other people, when we look to other things to give us life, we place a burden on them that they cannot possibly bear. It will crush them. It will crush them. Kids cannot sustain you or give you life. A spouse cannot sustain you or give you life. A job cannot sustain you or give you life. Things cannot sustain you or give you life. Nothing and no one can bring life to your life except the risen Christ. So where are you looking for life? Where are you looking for hope? Where are you looking for a savior? See, the one key key thing in all these pursuits is the same for all of us. No matter how we go about pursuing these things, we are at the center. Maybe I should say me is at the center. My wants, my desires, my needs. What's something that pretty much every person does every day in the morning before they leave the house? What, what, what do people do in the morning before they leave the house? Eat breakfast, brush your teeth, maybe. Some of you are like, I don't eat breakfast and I don't brush my teeth. <laughs> but what's something everybody does every morning? Look in the mirror, right? We look in the mirror. Maybe not all of you look in the mirror. Maybe, maybe some of you should look in the mirror before you leave the house. But <laughs> no, listen, I'm not going to say get rid of your mirrors. That's not the point, Okay. It's okay to look in the mirror, make sure your hair is not funky or you don't have something hanging out in your nose or in your teeth before you go out for the day. And mirrors have been around for thousands of years. Isn't that interesting? It used to be polished rocks or polished metals until we understood how we could do this with reflective glass and all those kinds of things. But they've been around for thousands of years. People like looking at themselves in the mirror. But here's something I've realized about myself. The place that I most often look to find life, the place I most often look to find hope, the place I most often look to find a savior is in the mirror. It's in the mirror. I look at myself and if I'm honest, I think I can be my own savior or that I want to be my own savior. That I can fix everything that needs to be fixed. 
that I can be everywhere that someone needs me to be, that I can know everything that I need to know to be who I think I need to be. When I was 23 years old, man, I thought I knew everything. Maybe some of you are 23 and you think you know everything right now. I thought I knew everything, and in about a month I turned 35, and (laughs) I've realized I still don't know everything, right? I've lived a little bit longer, and I'm sure in 10 more years, and 20 more years, 30 more years, Lord willing, God will continue to show me by His grace that I don't know everything, that I don't have it all together, and especially during challenging times in my life, even over these last few months, this last year, when I look in the mirror, I have to acknowledge a distinct reality. There's a lot I don't know, and there's a lot I can't do. I can't find inherent life in myself. I can't find inherent hope in myself. I can't be my own Savior, and I can't be anyone else's Savior. And here's the truth, is that neither can you. Neither can you. But there's good news for you and there's good news for me this morning. We don't have to be. We don't have to be. We don't have to find life within ourselves. We don't have to find hope within ourselves. We don't have to be our own Savior and we can't be. But Jesus can and He has. See, Sojourn, the resurrection not only eases the tension of being a broken people in a broken world, it overcomes it. It overcomes it. Because the resurrection is a part of Jesus' story. And Jesus invites you into his story. He invites you into his story to make your story a part of his story and his story a part of your story. It's one of the most beautiful things about the resurrection, about the reality of it in your life, is that when you recognize this, that life is found only in the risen king, in Jesus, and you place your faith in him and you place your trust in him, you are united to Jesus. The scripture tells us that we have an unbreakable union with Christ unbreakable union with him. This means that his life now becomes your life. His death becomes your death. It's your old way of living. Your old way of life has been crucified with him and his resurrection now becomes your resurrection. That's what union with Jesus means and that is your hope. That's your hope. Do you remember our friend Peter? Peter who ran to the tomb, saw that it was empty and walked away marveling at all that had happened. Later on in Luke chapter 24, we see Jesus actually comes to Peter and and appears to him physically and interacts with Peter. In the Gospel of John chapter 21, we see Jesus restores Peter because Peter had denied Jesus openly three times. Peter sought life in himself. He sought life in all the wrong places, but the risen Jesus came to him. He sought him out and it changed everything for Peter. And Peter wrote something in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to listen to these words because these are for you this morning. Just listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter writes this, the same Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Man, I love that. And I love that Peter is the one who says that to you and to me. Peter who had an inkling of faith, an inkling of hope. God saw that blossom into a full faith and a full hope that he could encourage you this morning. That you have a living hope because you recognize that it's only through the risen Jesus that you can find life. And as you recognize that, you can rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of suffering. Because we love the Savior and we believe in him and we know that he's alive. So I think it's God's grace to us when we walk through difficulty in life. It's God's grace to us when we walk through trials in life. Because when we look in the mirror and we acknowledge what's always been true, that we can't do this, that life is hard, and that we are not self-sovereigns. Because it's in those moments that God meets us and God reminds us of the truth that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that we thought that we'd received a sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but to rely on the God who raises the dead. See, sometimes life seems out of control, but the resurrection tells us that God is always in control. Our God brings life in places of death. Only he can do that. What seemed to be the end was really and actually a new beginning for the ladies at the empty tomb, for the apostles, for Peter, for you and for me. Sojourn, the resurrection changes everything. Because now when you look for life in a place of death, or you look for a savior in the mirror, you can stop and say, wait, wait. There's someone who's overcome. There's someone who's defeated all of my greatest enemies, all my greatest shortcomings and sin. There's someone who can make me whole. There's someone who's making all things and will make all things new. There's someone, there's someone who can help me just get through the day today. And he's alive. And he's inviting you to come to him and to follow him today, to follow him right now, and to be with him at his father's dining room table around a family meal fully restored forever. If your faith is in Jesus, then you are united to Jesus. What that means is he takes what is yours and he gives you what is his. And if if you're united to Jesus, when you wake up tomorrow morning and you look for life in that mirror, look a little further and a little deeper in. Because Jesus is Lord. He's alive and he has come to set you free from sin and death now. And he has and he can do all those things because he is risen. See, I think you and I have the same problem that those ladies did on that first Easter Sunday and the apostles. We forget Jesus' words to us. And we forget this truth. Especially when life is difficult and especially when life is mundane. So we need to heed the angel's words to the, to the women. We need to remember. So when you open your eyes tomorrow or Thursday of this week and, and your mind is flooded with thoughts about your day, what you need to do or things that are going on in your life right now that are causing anxiety or causing pain or challenging for you, remember that the tomb is still empty. That Jesus is risen, that he's alive forevermore, and he's ruling and he's reigning, and he will come again to make all things new. May that truth give you life today. 
Maybe this morning that you find yourself sitting there just struggling to believe that Christ is who he says he is and has done what he said he came to do. You're struggling to believe that he really is risen, that he really is alive. So let me just, if you will, let me challenge you and let me encourage you and ask you to consider doing something today. When you try to find life or happiness in someone or something else that is not Christ, it will never satisfy you. It'll never last. And I can imagine if you're honest with yourself, you already know that. You already know that. There's been things in your life, people in your life, circumstances in your life that have disappointed you, that haven't delivered for you. And maybe you too look in the mirror and you try to find life or salvation who's reflected back at you. But listen to me, until you are united to Christ by faith, all you will see looking back at you is death because you're looking for life in all the wrong places. You're looking for the living among the dead. So let me ask you to consider doing something this morning. Will you, will you consider taking a step of faith, maybe just like Peter, just going and looking for yourself? Look to Jesus who stands ready for you with his arms open saying, come to me. Come to me and let me take your burdens. Come to me and I will give you life. Maybe for others of you this morning, you're thinking, man, God would never accept me if I came to him. He wouldn't accept me because of who I am or what I've done or what's been done to me. But listen to me this morning, you are not a lost cause. You are not a lost cause. You are not too far gone. You are not too far from God's reach. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing you've thought in your pursuit of life and places of death that Christ has not overcome when he overcame death. And so the cross is a picture telling us that Jesus loves us to the uttermost. And the resurrection is a picture. The empty tomb is a picture telling us that Jesus, because he loved us to the uttermost, can save us to the uttermost. Because our God raises the dead. And he can bring life to you no matter who you are. No matter who you are. The empty tomb is an invitation to you. Not to look for life in all the wrong places, but to look for life in him the only one who can give it to you. So will you come to him today? Will you place your faith in Jesus, the risen king, today? Sojourn, when you look in the mirror this week to start your day, look beyond yourself and your circumstances. Look beyond what the world or others promise to you or demand from you. And look to Jesus for your life. He is the anchor for your life now and he is the hope for your life tomorrow because he is risen he is risen indeed. Every week at Sojourn, we take communion to get together. And what this means is we take a piece of bread and we break it and we take a cup and we drink it. And the reason we do this is both because it's a symbol and a reality. The broken bread says that Christ, the very bread of life, his body was broken for you. That the cup says that Christ's blood was shed for you. And Jesus told us that every time we eat this bread, every time we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. See, when Jesus says that, he's talking about both his death and the cross and his resurrection because he says he's coming again. And though we do not now see him, we love him. Though we do not now see him, we believe in him. And so when we eat the bread and we drink the cup this morning, we're proclaiming, yes, Jesus is risen and life is found in him. And so this Easter morning, come quickly to the table. Eat and drink. Celebrate and declare that life is not found among dead things, but
but life is found in our risen King who loved you and gave himself for you. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning, but just to hang out in your seat. And it's not going to be awkward or weird. There'll be a lot of people moving around. Nobody's going to pay attention to you sitting in your seat. But we just ask you not to come forward this morning because this doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't save you. This is an encouragement to us if we're united to Jesus. But if you haven't yet been united to Jesus, I want you to do that today. I want you to take Christ today. I want you to trust in Jesus today. And maybe all you have right now is just that inkling of faith, that little bit of hope. You can just be honest with God. God, is it true? Are you real? Jesus, are you really alive? Would you take that step of faith today? Maybe you're ready to start a relationship with Jesus today, and that invitation sounds really good to you, and I want to invite you to take it. Place your faith in Christ today. Ask God to forgive you because of your sin, and trust in Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus today. And if you have questions about what that means, you can go to the Connect table and talk with people there. You can look to the person next to you, maybe you came with. You can come talk to me after the service. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to talk with you and pray for you. But know this, this is why this church is here. Because we want people to know Jesus. And we want to help one another walk with Jesus. So if that's you, would you do that today? For those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or to the back. There's some tables in the back. And there'll be some people there that are going to serve you this morning. And they're going to say something to you. As you tear the piece of bread, they're going to say, Jesus' body was broken for you. And as you take the cup, they're going to say, Jesus' blood was shed for you. Listen to their words this morning. Rejoice in that truth. Rejoice in that reality this morning. And celebrate that Christ is risen. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice this morning. We rejoice this morning with joy that's inexpressible because of the fact that our living hope that we've been born again to comes in and through the resurrection of Jesus. And so Father, I pray very simply this, that you would help us as your people here and now, throughout this week, throughout this month, throughout our life, to not look for life in the wrong places, to not look for the living among the dead, but to look for life in the risen Christ. Lord, would you help us to do that by the power of your spirit, by the gift of your word, by the gift of this community, would you help us to help one another to do that, to look one another at one another and say, brother, sister, life is found in Jesus, look to him. And Lord, I pray this week as we look in the mirror, fix our hair, brush our teeth. Lord, I pray that we look a little further and a little deeper in and recognize the risen Lord and find our hope in him. Lord, we praise you that we can celebrate the resurrection of Jesus today, but I pray today would not be the only day. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you love and you care for us, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.